The following audio presentation is from Parkwood Baptist Church. The purpose of Parkwood Baptist Church is to glorify God by laboring together for the growth of all believers while going with the gospel to all peoples. More information about Parkwood Baptist Church is available at parkwoodonline.org. That's parkwoodonline.org. Good morning. Welcome to our time of worship. We're going to be in Genesis chapters 5 through 9. Hope you brought a lunch. No, what I want to do today is I want you to see this as one story. We could broke this down. I had multiple sermons uh, about Noah and the flood. But I wanted you to see it in one story and how this one story is so clearly pointing us to Christ. Now, here's one of the mistakes we make, particularly as it relates to the Old Testament. That we see the Old Testament as a series of moral stories. So Noah's a good guy. He builds an ark. Be like Noah. That's not the point. That is not God's point at all. This is a God-centered story. God is the main actor. Listen carefully. Noah doesn't speak until the end of chapter 9. He says nothing. It is God who does the speaking. It is God who is orchestrating the events as they unfold. Noah is simply a picture of God's grace. And that's what we want to see today. To focus our hearts and minds, I've chosen Genesis chapter 6, verses 5 through 22, which is in the very heart of this story, for us to understand and gain a point of reference as to how we will move through this text today. So as we acknowledge this is the word of God, I invite you to stand as I read from Genesis chapter 6. Verse 5, the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord was sorry that he had made man on the earth and it grieved him to his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I have made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. These are the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Noah walked with God. And Noah had three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight, and the earth was filled with violence. And God saw the earth, and behold, it was corrupt. For all the flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. And God said to Noah, I have determined to make an end of all flesh, for the earth is filled with violence and through them. Behold, I will destroy them with the earth. Make yourself an ark of gopher wood. Make rooms in the ark. Cover it inside and out with pitch. This is how are you to make it. Its length of the ark is 300 cubits. Its breadth, 50 cubits. And its height, 30 cubits. Make a roof for the ark and finish it a cubit above and set the door of the ark on its side. Make it with a lower, second, and third decks. For behold, I will bring a flood of waters upon the earth to destroy all flesh in which is the breadth breadth of the life under heaven. Everything that is on the earth shall die, but I shall establish my covenant with you and you shall come into the ark, you and your sons, your wife and your sons' wives with you. And of every living thing of all flesh, you shall bring two of every sort into the ark to keep them alive with you. They shall be male and female of the birds according to their kinds and the animals according to their kinds of every creeping thing of the ground according to its kind 
Two of every sort shall come into you to keep them alive. And take with you every sort of food that is eaten and store it up. It shall serve as food for you and for them. Noah did this. He did all that God commanded him. Let's pray. Lord, we ask now that as we take up this account in your word, that we would acknowledge this is the word of God. This is not a myth. This is not a made up story. It is true. It is history. And it speaks clearly to us today. So take your word and apply it to our hearts, we plead in the name of Jesus. Amen. If you'll start with me in Genesis chapter 5, this is the descendants from Adam to Noah. It starts this way. This is the book of generations of Adam. When God created man, he made him in the likeness of God. Male and female, he created them, and he blessed them and named them man when they were created. And when Adam had lived 130 years, he fathered a son in his own likeness after his image and named him Seth. Now, if you take that summary account and you lay it on top of Genesis chapter 1 through 4, then here's what you see repeated to you. You see creation repeated, that God created man and made man in his image and his likeness. The fall is suggested here because Cain and Abel are not discussed. It goes right to Seth, which then clearly points us to redemption of God keeping the seed alive. You then proceed of talking about how long these people lived. Adam lived 930 years and he died and Seth 912 years and he died. Thus, the days of Enosh were 905 years and he died. Well, you work your way down to Enoch, verse 21, Enoch lived 65 years. He fathered Methuselah and Enoch walked with God after he fathered Methuselah 300 years and he had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days of Enoch were 365 years. Keep that in your mind. Enoch walked with God and he was not for God took him. So Enoch is an exception in this list of and he died. Enoch walked with God and God took him to be with him without tasting death. Here is the implication. Enoch fathered Methuselah. Now, Methuselah is famous in the Bible because he lived the longest. He lived 969 years. Several years ago, our founding pastor, who is still alive, he's 103 years old. His name is uh, Emma Owens Jr. Uh, I was uh, going to speak at a banquet for Emma's 95th birthday, and I was putting together a history of Dr. Owens' life. And we were at the dinner table the night before and I was sharing some of this information with my kids and I said, would anybody like to guess what MO stands for? To which my oldest son immediately said, Methuselah. <laughs> so Methuselah is famous for being the oldest, but notice he, Adam, Seth, Enosh, Kenan, they, they all come up short of a thousand. Nobody makes it to a thousand years. Now, that's likely significant because a thousand would represent a perfection that no man reaches this year. This is something that God prevents. But, but, notice how long Enoch lived. 365 years. You say, well, that's a short life. Not if you pay attention to it. How many days are in a year? 365. Here's what God's saying about Enoch's life. Enoch's life was complete. He lived a complete life, just as 365 days, complete a year. Now we proceed from there. He's the great grandfather 
of Noah. Now Noah, as I've said, is not the main actor. God is the main actor. He, he, though, is a central player in what happens. But let's look at this as we should from God's perspective. First, we see God's knowledge of the wickedness and the ceaseless evil of humanity. And Genesis 6 starts with this people, the Nephilim. Now it's in verses one through four, and this intrigues people. I've had as many questions about the Nephilim uh, from people in the church over my years of ministry as I've had about the book of Revelation. So I want you to hear me here for just a few minutes as you are drawn, maybe those of you who are very technical with the Bible to get all Twitter-pated and worried about who these people are. First of all, the word Nephilim means fallen ones. So this idea that the Nephilim are part God, part man is a false idea. God says in verse three, my flesh shall not abide in man forever for he is flesh. His days shall be 120 years. So everyone, all men, including the Nephilim, God's about to destroy in 120 days. So to, to get yourself all focused on this is, is really, quite frankly, a waste of time. What God is saying is man was descending into wickedness. And whoever these Nephilim are exactly, they are an example of a descent into wickedness, which is summarized in verse 5. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth. Now That could be a period there, but he piles words up that every intentions of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. So this means that not only were men and women doing wrong, they were delighting in wrong. They boasted in their wrong. The evil was present not only in their practice, but in their heart, in their imagination, in their minds. Now, because of this, because of what we read right here, and next week we're going to deal with the Tower of Babel, which again, after Noah, man spirals into wickedness and God has to deal in judgment yet again with man that we wanted to ask this question in preparation for growth groups that over the next two weeks to dive into how do you live as a Christian in an ever descending wicked world? How do you live as a true follower of Christ in the midst of a world that every day seems to and does get worse? Well, that's what first Peter was written for. First Peter was written for God's chosen generation to live out their faith in the midst of a world that is the antithesis of Christ. So I encourage you over the next couple of weeks, not only to be a part of growth group, but to prepare as you go, as we enter into a discussion about how to live. Back to Genesis. Verse six. And the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth and it grieved him to his heart. Some of your translation says, and the Lord repented that he made man. And we got to make sure that we don't misinterpret the Bible here and what God is saying. Numbers 23, 19 says, God is not a man, not man that he should lie or a son of man that he should change his mind. Has he said and will he not do or has he spoken and will he not fulfill it? So the point is this, God, God is not fickle. God does not make mistakes. God does not start out with something and then say, oops, I made a mistake. I got to change. That's not the point here in Genesis chapter six, that God's made a mistake in creating man. Here's what it's saying. 
God is not indifferent to human sin. God's not going to turn away from human sin. This is a quote. Repentance in God is only a change of his outward conduct. According to his infallible foresight and immutable will, when God speaks of his repenting that he made man, it is only his changing his conduct from a way of kindness to a way of severity. Now this should gain our attention here. That God is, is grieved to the heart of a man and now God is going to move from dealing with man in kindness to dealing with man in severity. So what we see that follows is God's judgment of human wickedness and the salvation of a remnant. Genesis 6, 7. So the Lord said, I will blot out man that I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heaven, for I am sorry that I've made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. These are the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Noah walked with God. Noah had three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight and the earth was filled with violence. And God saw the earth and behold, it was corrupt for all the flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. And God said to Noah, I have determined to make an end of all flesh for the earth is filled with violence through them. Behold, I will destroy them with the earth. Now folks, here's, here's one of the evidences that needs to wake you up of how the spiral of humanity down into sin in my lifetime. And that is violence. Just in this cold, indifferent way that human beings are creating violent acts against one another. War is no longer enough. Now people get in vehicles and run people over on the sides of the road. Last night, yet again, in a nightclub in Cincinnati, someone went in and shot multiple people. We live in an increasingly violent world. And that violence, that sin, that depravity, that spiral brings the judgment of God. And God here says he's going to ruin the earth going to destroy it. And this punishment, it fits the crime. Now here's a difference. Up to this point, God had dealt with individuals, Adam and Eve, Cain. God now deal, moves from dealing with a man in judgment to dealing with mankind. This is a sweeping judgment. Then you have verse six, I mean, verse eight. Tucked in here, and God's saying he's going to judge in the wickedness of man, and it says, But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Favor. That means grace. Noah receives grace from God. Now, it's important that we understand what God's saying here, because if you don't, you're going to get your theology all out of whack and get all messed up. If you're hearing, Noah was a good man, and because Noah was a good man, God helped him then you're hearing an entirely different religion and you're not hearing the God of the Bible. What the God of the Bible is saying here is that no one escapes judgment apart from God's grace, apart from God's 
unmerited favor. God is gracious to Noah, not because Noah is good. God is gracious to Noah out of his own heart, out of God's heart. Noah becomes a righteous man, but Noah becomes a righteous man because of the grace of God. Just, righteous. He walks with God. Then he obeys God, verses 14 to 21, and he builds the ark. He does it exactly as God tells him to. Verse 22 says, Noah did this. He did all that commanded him. That's repeated in chapter 7, verses 5, 9, and 16. Now think about this. This is an act of faith on Noah's part. If you start in, in, in the beginning of chapter 6, God's saying in 120 years, I'm going to destroy the earth. So for 100 years or more, Noah's building a boat. And he's not by the ocean. A big, massive boat. This is an act of faith every day when Noah gets up and pounds nails and cuts boards. He's believing God every day that God is going to do what he said. And Hebrews eleven seven 7 is described this way. By faith, Noah. Not by his works. By faith, Noah, being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen in reverent fear, constructed an ark for the saving of his household. By this, he condemned the world and became an heir of righteousness that comes by faith. You see, every day that Noah worked on that ark, he was preaching There's a coming judgment. Not recorded, but I'm sure people ask him what he was doing and why he was doing it. I'm sure they mocked him. I'm sure they ridiculed him. But surely the flood comes. Genesis chapter 7 records the flood. This is a quote. Quote, I'm not going to detain you with a discussion about whether the flood actually happened. It did. Jesus Christ believed the flood happened. He said so. So if you want to doubt the flood, then you've got to, deva- you've got to doubt what Jesus said. You doubt what Jesus said, there is no salvation. Now this flood comes because God commands that it come. He tells Noah at the beginning of chapter seven that in one week he's going to send rain and it's going to come for 40 days and for 40 nights. And every living creature that he made, he will blot from the face of the ground that he's to take his family and the animals and to board the ark. The time has finally come. So they board the ark, Noah and, verse 7 says, and his sons and his wife and his son's wife with him went into the ark to escape the waters of flood. This is important that you, that you realize this. They believe God too. Noah's family believes God. They, they're not forced on the ark. They're not made to get on the ark. They believe God and they board the ark. And then we come to verse 16. And those that entered male and female of all flesh went in as God commanded him and the Lord shut him in. That's a significant phrase. 
I'm going to surprise some of you and prepare others of you for when you go to college, because this is one of the points of ridicule of Christianity. This is fact. There are ancient flood stories from multiple civilizations that have been written down for centuries. They all attribute to a cataclysmic flood. From that point, they differ. The other stories, the other flood accounts, are very man-centered in how they approach. For example, in the Epic of Gilgamesh, the gods get all twitterpated about it and panic as to how they're going to get inside the boat and how they're going to shut themselves in, which they finally accomplish. This is not how the Bible records it. God commands them to go in and God shuts them in. It is God's work, not theirs. And here's what God has given you a picture of, that inside the ark is salvation. Because outside the ark, destruction is now coming. Look in verse 10. And after seven days, the waters of the flood came upon the earth. And in the 600th year of Noah's life, in the second month, on the 17th day of the month, on that day, all the fountains of the great deep burst forth and the windows of heaven were open. Now, don't miss this. The windows of heaven were open. That means it rained from above, but it proceeds by saying, and the fountains of the deep were opened. It, the water came from below. <laughs> you ever wonder where that water comes from when you turn your tap on? It's down there, it's under the ground. God opens the deluge from both places and the flood comes. Now Psalm 29.10 says the Lord sits sits enthroned over the flood. It never got out of God's control. God's fully in control of what's happening. We know that in verse 17 that it continued for 40 days on the earth and the water increased and bore up the ark and it rose high above the earth and the waters prevailed and increased greatly on the earth and the ark floated on the face of the waters and the waters prevailed so mightily on the earth that all the high mountains were under the whole heaven were covered. And all of the living creatures, all the flesh, verse 21, that moved on the earth, the birds and the livestock and the beasts, all the swarming creatures swarm on the earth and all mankind, everything on the dry land whose nostrils with breath of life died. He blotted out every living creature was on the face of the ground, man and animals, creeping things and birds of the heavens that were blotted out from the earth. Only Noah was left and those who were with him in the ark and the waters prevailed on the earth 150 days. And if you're playing Bible trivia, the rain lasted 40 days and 40 nights, but the flood covering the earth prevailed for 150 days. It's a long time, months. When you come to Genesis chapter eight, the flood now subsides. And I would mark this in my Bible, if if you write in your Bible, Genesis chapter eight, verse one is the turning point. But God remembered Noah. So this judgment is pouring out, but God remembered Noah And all the beasts and the livestock that were with him in the ark. And God made a wind to blow over the earth and the water subsided. So it is God who decreases the waters in the beginning of chapter 8, verses 1 through 5, and causes the waters to abate. 
In verses 6 through 14, Noah investigates. He sends out a raven, a dove, then he sends another dove. Now, here's the image. Noah's got this little bitty window. He can peek out. Now, here's in your mind what you think Noah's doing. Noah's deciding when he's leaving. That's not what happens. Noah does not make the decision when to leave. Verse, chapter 8, verse 15. Then God said to Noah, go out from the ark, you and your wife and your sons and your sons' wives with you. You see, it took months after the waters parted for the ground to dry out. And it was God's call as to when they left. He told them to bring out every living thing that is with you and all the flesh, the birds and the animals and every creeping thing that creeps in the earth, that they may swarm on the earth and be fruitful and multiply. So it's God's call. He commands, they leave, then they respond. And what you see in the rest of chapter 8 and in chapter 9 is God's promise for the future. A new beginning unfolds. And Noah celebrates this new beginning as they leave the ark in chapter 8, verse 20, that Noah built an an altar to the Lord and took some of every clean animal and some of every clean bird and offered burnt offerings to the Lord. And when the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma, the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of man, for the intentions of man's heart is evil from his youth. Neither will I ever strike down every living creature as I've done, while the earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night shall not cease. Now what Noah's actions here reveal is that this is a God-centered man. He's not just glad to be out of the boat. They don't start with a party. They start with worship. Clearly an indication that Noah is thankful that he comes before God and makes this offering and God accepts it. God is pleased with this offering of worship. And then God responds with a promise. He says, chapter nine, verse one, God blessed Noah and his sons and he said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. God God doesn't just take them off the boat. He, He blesses them and he says to them, be fruitful and multiply. Now this sounds familiar. Who has he said this to already? Adam and Eve. So what's God doing here? He's starting afresh, anew. A new creation, if you will. Noah, you and your family and these animals, you be fruitful and multiply. Now God makes a change. In verses two through four, God tells us for the first time here that they're able to kill animals and to eat the animals. Now they're to respect the life that is in the animals and the life is represented by the blood. So they're to drain the blood out of the animal because blood equals life. Then in transition in verse five, God is saying that what is unique among you, you respect life, but what is unique among you is the life that God gives to another man, to another human being. And if you take the life of a human being, your life is to be taken. God then proceeds to make a covenant. Chapter eight, verse 13. God said to Noah and his sons with him, Behold, I establish my covenant with you and your offspring offspring after you, and with every living creature that is with you, the birds, the livestock, and every beast of the earth with you, 
As many as come out of the ark, it is for every beast of the earth. I established my covenant with you that never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of the flood and never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. And God said, this is the sign of the covenant that I make between me and you and every living creature that is with you for all future generations. I have set my bow in the cloud and that shall be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. God uses the word covenant here seven times. This is what God initiates. He doesn't discuss and debate this covenant with Noah. He doesn't ask for Noah's input. He initiates this covenant, makes it with Noah, with Noah's offspring, and with all living things. This covenant is for all. It is an unconditional covenant. There's no condition tied to it. And it is an unending covenant. And God gives the sign of this covenant. Don't miss what verse 17 says. I have set my what? What does it say? I've set my bow. Not rainbow. Bow. It's a weapon. Here's what God's saying. I'm not going to contend and fight with you. Here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to establish a covenant with you. I've set my bow in front of you. And this bow is a rainbow. And when you look at this rainbow, you're going to be reminded that I am promising that I'm never going to destroy the earth again with a flood. Now I want you to think with me, brothers and sisters. People can take what I'm about to say in all different kinds of ways and get all fired up about it. I want you to hear the alarm in me. According to Romans chapter one, here's when you know God is judging a culture. Not he's going to judge. Here's how you know God is judging a culture. You know God is judging a culture when men give in to relations with other men and women give in to relations with other women. That's when you know. So Romans chapter one is not saying When you start seeing this, God's about to judge. Here's what it says. God's judging. Now, it ought to disturb you, not make you mad and want to fight. It ought to disturb you down in your core that the homosexual agenda has chosen God's sign of covenant in a mocking manner. To God. That a rainbow is representing them. When it is God's sign of his unconditional, unending love. But unlike us, God doesn't panic. You see, according to Revelation chapter 4, verse 3, a rainbow will encircle the throne of God forever. That God is ever going to keep this reminder of his grace and his promise and his mercy toward us. So here's the question I have. Why a covenant? Why did God make this promise? Here's why. In Genesis chapter 3 verse 15, God promised an offspring. And God is promising here that he is making a way for this offspring to come. That even though he has judged the world for its wickedness, his grace saves a remnant with Noah and his family. 
so that through this remnant, through the offspring, through the seed of Noah is coming the second Adam. Now, how do we need to take what God has done here in the flood? How do we need to apply this to our own hearts and lives today? Just as this account, this story does two things. It warns you and gives you a promise. I want to warn you and give you a promise. Number one, Jesus Christ is coming to judge the living and the dead. Jesus Christ is coming to judge the living and the dead. Now, I'm just going to tell you what I'm about to do because somebody sarcastically said, well, that was some hellfire and brimstone preaching. I'm about to do a little hellfire and brimstone preaching. I'm not ashamed of it. Part of the reason this world has spiraled into the shape it's in is because we are ignoring the fact that Jesus Christ is coming who will judge the living and the dead. We are living just like people were in the days of Noah. Jesus said we would. In Matthew chapter 24, verse 37, he says, For as were the days of Noah, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. For in the days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark, and they were unaware until the flood came and swept them all away. So will be the coming of the Son of Man. So what is Jesus describing here? He's describing a pure materialistic outlook of the world. This is all there is. This is it. So let's just make money and let's eat and let's drink and let's throw parties and get married and get out of marriages and get in another one because this is all we got. Above everything, God just wants me to be happy. That's it. So let's pursue happiness with all we've got. Let's get all we can out of this life. And by the way, preachers and Christians, don't talk about eternity. Don't bring up God. Don't you dare talk about death. We don't have funerals anymore. We have celebrations of, ah. We've completely changed the narrative because death speaks to judgment. And that's the biggie you better not talk about. I'm not trying to be hateful here. I know this. There are going to be people who will not come back here because of what I'm saying right now. So I say to you, go find you a preacher who tells you what you want to hear. And when Jesus Christ splits the sky, don't be shocked. Because he's coming. And he's coming to judge the world in righteousness. When I was in high school, Mount St. Helens erupted. This is a history lesson for you kiddos and millennials who have no idea what Mount St. Helens is. It's a mountain in the United States in the Northwest. For weeks, this was on the news as tremors and earthquakes happened surrounding Mount Helens. As St. Helens, as scientists said, at any moment, at any moment, it's going to erupt. Well, this little old man at the base of Mount St. Helens became quite famous. He had a famous name. His name was Harry Truman. Harry lived the closest to Mount St. Helens of anybody. He was interviewed multiple times. You can go look him up on YouTube today. Uh, Multiple times. He was a vile, foul-mouthed old man who said, I ain't going nowhere. 
This one video that I watched of him, he says, he talks about an earthquake shaking him literally out of his bed. Might be time to move, Harry. But here was his logic. The mouth of the crater is a mile from here. There's no way this is going to affect me. You can watch the eruption of Mount St. Helens and you can actually find where there's a little dot put around Harry's house and within moments his home was consumed. He died a violent, awful death. Why? He lived in harm's way and he knew it, but here's what he decided. I'll just stay. This is the tragic error everybody growing up around Noah lived. As he built an ark in harm's way. They just ignored it. They continued on their way, doing what they wanted, and suddenly the flood swept in on them. When I was a child, when I'd go to the doctor, they had a child's story Bible, and I would always open to the page where you could see the bottom of Noah's boat and these people clamoring at the base of the boat, begging to get in. And I remember the horror that picture would make me have. You see, I don't have to live in horror and nor do you. Because Jesus Christ has come. He has come. And he has come so that whoever believes in him will not perish on that day, the day he returns. John 3, 16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. You know what it's saying? Jesus is the ark. He's how you're saved, you're saved through him so that you will not perish. Perish is not death, you're all gonna die, friend. Perish is that you will not face the sure and certain judgment of God. Christ came, he lived a sinless life and on the cross died a sinner's death in your place and he bore God's wrath for you. He then was buried and three days later rose again to prove that he is life, that he is God. That whoever believes in him will not perish, but has eternal life. Isaiah 54, for a brief moment I deserted you, but with great compassion I will gather you. In overflowing anger for a moment I hid my face from you, but with everlasting love I will have compassion on you, says the Lord your Redeemer. So you need to hear this, friend. When you're hearing me talk about judgment, this God who is going to judge, he has to, he's God. He cannot tolerate the sin of the world. But this God who must, out of his character, judge is a God who is compassionate and merciful and gracious. And he has extended his love toward us. This like the days of Noah to me, as I swore to the waters of Noah, should no more go over the earth. For I have sworn that I will not be angry with you. I will not rebuke you. For the mountains may depart and the hills may be renewed, but my steadfast love shall not depart from you and my covenant of peace shall not be removed, says the Lord who has compassion on you. Do you hear me, Christian? I don't know where you are and I'm not trying to be political here, but you gotta hear me. 
Your salvation is not coming from a nation. Your salvation is not coming from a person. Some trust in chariots and some trust in horses. What that means? They're people who trust in the might of their nation. Some trust in chariots and some trust in horses. But I will trust in the name of the Lord our God. The moment I saw, by God's grace, the love of Jesus, and I saw the weight of my sin, and I believed on Jesus Christ, my Lord. You hear me? God shut the door. Now, As judgment comes, the ark rises. We're not overcome. This world's not going to take us in. We are safe in Christ Jesus our Lord. Matthew 24 gives way to Matthew 25, the parable of the ten virgins. Most of them are messing around, doing whatever they want to do. The bridegroom comes, they show up too late, and you know what the Bible says? The door was shut. Shut. Here's the lie there are people living with in this room who've been around church their whole life, who come in this place and listen to biblical preaching every week. Here's the lie you're believing. I'll get in at the last second. No, you won't. The last seconds own you, friend. The earthquakes ought to be rocking you out of your bed. You better wake up from your slumber and look to Christ and believe. He is the only way unto salvation. Now you hear me on this final illustration. If we in America had a way to identify tsunamis were coming and repeatedly tsunamis were slamming into South Asia and we didn't take that to them, we would call that a moral failure. We would rise up and picket and give speeches. But we as Christians will sit here and debate whether we ought to go across the street or across the world when we know that a tsunami is coming to South Asia and they're not ready. God has called us to go and to tell the nations that there is safety in Jesus Christ. He is the one who saves. So salvation is not just for you. Here's what happens when you get in the ark. You realize there are other people here. This isn't just for me. That's the joy of the fellowship of being with God's people. If you do not know Christ this day, I implore you, I beg you, turn to Christ and believe. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you for your word and for the truth of it. I thank you for speaking. Now, God, I pray that you would call people to yourself that you would save men and women from their sin.
people would look to Christ and believe this day. And Lord, I pray that you would put an alarm in us, an alarm in us to sound to the nations and to our neighbors that Christ is coming and that he has come and he saves. Speak, we pray now in Jesus' name. Thanks for listening to this audio presentation from Parkwood Baptist Church, located in Gastonia, North Carolina. Please feel free to share this message with others. For more information about Parkwood Baptist Church, visit parkwoodonline.org. That's parkwoodonline.org.